costume superheroes ultimately battle criminals in the name of the law, even if they themselves often operate outside a strictly legal framework. But in the modern state, the very status of law is a problem. This is because of a basic paradox. No system can generate itself. This creates a fundamental incoherence in the very idea of modern government, which assumes that the state has a monopoly of the legitimate use of violence. Only police, or prison guards, or duly authorized private security have the legal right to beat you up. It's legitimate for the police to use violence because they are enforcing the law. The law is legitimate because it's rooted in the Constitution. The Constitution is legitimate because it comes from the people. The people created the law by acts of illegal violence. David Graeber. Hello and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, mutual aid, cooperation, non-domination in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. Now, in this season two episode called Batman vs. Anarchism, I'm giving you a piece of writing that I wrote right before I accepted my current position at the University of North Carolina. You see, this wasn't meant to be a podcast. This was meant to be the introduction to a book. Yes, in my free time in the summer, while making a weekly podcast and caring for two small children, I started writing a book called Batman vs. Anarchism. Now, theoretically, I would still like this book to exist. And if you would like this book to exist, please email me at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com and tell me that. Maybe I will write it. I decided I definitely wasn't going to write it during this first academic year as I got settled back into college teaching. But hey, I wrote this intro. I thought it would be a pretty cool podcast. It lets me talk about David Graeber and Batman. So here it is. My introduction to my hopefully future book, Batman vs. Anarchism. In Cold Comfort, which is a forgettable episode of the forgettable show, The New Batman Adventures, both Batman and the audience are getting to know Tim Drake, who is Dick Grayson's replacement as Robin. In Batman the Animated Series, Dick Grayson is introduced as a college-age Bruce clone. He's already square-jawed and square-shouldered, just waiting for time and experience to turn him into the perfect Batman replica. We meet Tim, on the other hand, before he has become Robin. He's a Dickensian scamp from the wrong side of the tracks who just happens to have a heart of gold and a way with a scavenged batarang. As the son of a career criminal, Tim has seen the corruption and condescension of the justice system. And he doesn't harbor Bruce's respect for cops, judges, and prisons. He doesn't like crooks either. He's just smart enough to know that the justice system doesn't dispense justice at least not to Dickensian scamps. As his new guardian, Bruce takes the responsibility to talk to Tim about his grades. Bruce says, Alfred tells me you failed a civics test. Tim, like I really care what a district attorney does. Bruce, you don't know the first thing about the American justice system, do you? Tim, I know it's bogus. And how did you come to that well-thought-out conclusion? Watching you. You don't exactly follow the rules of due process. Tim gets the last word. All Bruce can say is, uh, how did you do on your math test? Now, in addition to the obvious irony of this exchange, that Bruce Wayne is trying to teach Tim Drake about a justice system, 
that Bruce Wayne suborns every day, we actually know what a district attorney does, at least in Gotham. In Gotham, the district attorney befriends Bruce Wayne, takes an extreme political stance against crime, is revealed to be some combination of personally and professionally corrupt, and becomes a grotesque supervillain, a leering metaphor for the monstrosity which openly shares the face of justice in Gotham City. If Tim had known a little more civics, he could have reminded Bruce that the two of them met when Harvey Dent, not only the former district attorney, but also formerly Bruce's best friend, was in the act of threatening Tim's life. That's what a district attorney does, threatens to murder you as a supervillain. So with what seems like pretty clear proof that there's a problem, how is it that Bruce has no answer to Tim's question? How has he never considered the fact that Batman works outside of the system because the system has failed, yet in defense of and on behalf of that same system? Films like uh, Batman Begins and The Batman, the 2022 Robert Pattinson one, grappled with the flip side of this problem quite overtly. If Batman's great enemy is crime, and crime is the product of social dysfunction, shouldn't blame rest with the city fathers. And isn't Bruce Wayne himself the city's current patriarch, and Thomas Wayne his predecessor in that role? Batman Begins avoids placing the problem within Bruce by making Gotham's failures the work of Ra's al Ghul, and thus making the enemy entirely external and not originating in the Wayne family. The Batman, more boldly, makes the conflict partly internal. Bruce's emo characterization in that movie is the product of his dawning realization that the criminal element that took the lives of Martha and Thomas Wayne was created and nurtured by Thomas himself. Thus, part of Bruce's struggle in The Batman follows the Freudian Oedipus narrative, in which Bruce must murder the memory of his father in order to become his own man and fix his father's mistakes. But while Batman stories are able to explicitly address the Wayne's role in the criminal industrial complex, they are much less able to explicitly confront Batman's role as an illegal part of a legal yet unjust system. Moments like the one in which Tim confronts Bruce about this contradiction are comparatively rare in Batman stories. Just as Freud concluded that adolescent boys could not consciously confront their desire to murder their father and replace him in their mother's bed, I have concluded that Batman cannot consciously confront his desire to commit crimes in the name of fighting crime. And this truth is suppressed not just by the character Batman, but the Batman stories themselves. Since Batman is the greatest enemy of crime, and Batman is a criminal, then Batman is not only his own worst enemy, but also a failure from the start. Furthermore, since Batman is a criminal, and the Batman stories are about a hero. Something bubbles up from the sociological unconscious in Batman stories. It is anarchism. The way the Batman stories solve this problem of repression is to invent this figure, the anarchist who Batman can fight. Now, Batman... <laughs> is obviously an anarchist. He works outside of the law to do good things. He's even, although not a pacifist, a non-lethal fighter. I think Gandhi might even approve. He's closer to the Gandhian tradition than he is to the, than he is to the tradition of assassination. But in the world that Batman lives in, anarchism 
is bad. So anarchism is an easy villain, except for the fact that Batman himself is an anarchist. But the solution is to not only make anarchism the villain, but use anarchy, use the dark side of anarchism as the other half of Bruce that he can always fight and defeat, and by doing so, prove that he is not an anarchist. As long as there's a distorted nightmare version of anarchism for Bruce to fight, the audience and the stories themselves will fail to recognize that Bruce is an anarchist, that Batman is practicing extra legal, although admittedly violent, mutual aid. Hence my title, Batman versus Anarchism. Now, there is another way to solve this problem, and the history of superheroes is filled with characters who, in Batman's wake, especially in the second half of the 20th century, resolve this contradiction by pledging themselves fully to an illegal war on criminals. Closest to home for Batman is Jason Todd's character, The Red Hood, as written by Grant Morrison, who simply murders criminals under the slogan, let the punishment fit the crime. The most famous example of this is the Punisher, Frank Castle, from Marvel stories, who likewise embraces flagrant illegality in his murderous campaign against crime. There's no logical conundrum for the Red Hood or the Punisher. They are against evil. They are willing to kill to fight evil. They do not have a hidden dark heart. They let their dark heart out into the open. Now, approaching the problem from the opposite side, there's stories like uh, Marvel Civil War in the comics. It's 2006-2007. And then a, a version in the um, Marvel movie, although it doesn't go fully down this road. And then Pixar's The Incredibles. In this case, um, in both of these stories, the state takes its position to the logical extreme. Superhero actions become illegal and superheroes become explicit criminals even if they are not breaking laws otherwise. Simply the act of taking justice into your own hands becomes illegal. But for our purposes, it doesn't really matter who makes this move, whether the superheroes go to their extreme of illegality or the state goes to its extreme of totalitarian anti-superhero-ness, the result is the same. The superheroes cease to be illegal defenders of legality. Either way, they end up, obviously and explicitly, against the system. As with so many things concerning superheroes, the greatest treatment of this topic comes in Alan Moore's The Watchmen, which is the greatest deconstruction of superheroes that yet exists. As in Civil War, the state brings the contradiction to an end by passing the Keene Act, which declares all superheroes illegal unless they join the state security apparatus. Uh, in The Watchmen, there's multiple figures who resemble Batman, particularly Night Owl and Rorschach, and they take opposite approaches to the Keen Act. Mild-mannered Dan Dryberg meekly retires from crime fighting as Night Owl, becoming not only irrelevant to the war on crime, but also sexually impotent. Walter Kovacs as Rorschach responds to the Keen Act by depositing the corpse of a multiple rapist on the street with a sign reading, Never, and Rorschach's symbol, around the corpse's neck. I take these to be the kind of options available to Batman if he attempts to square this circle. But if he does that, he ceases to be Batman. 
the character of Batman cannot bring himself to confront these questions. If he does so, um, in that TV episode when Tim Drake brings up the issue directly, Bruce can only change the subject to a math test. But when Batman stories examine Batman's origin and psychology, they have no choice but to reckon with the contradiction. Again and again, the greatest Batman stories, Arkham Asylum, Batman The Dark Knight Returns, Batman Year One, Batman Begins, the 2008 film The Dark Knight, and The Batman, the 2022 film, raise this question. But they can never fully resolve it. To resolve it would be to accept Batman as either the unhinged Rorschach or the neutered Night Owl. And yes, in my book proposal, I've got uh, chapters on each one of these as a paradigm of how Batman fights anarchism. Hopefully, this will happen for another day. Now, let's go back to that opening David Graeber quote about how this illegal legality, this incoherence, afflicts actually the entire society. So it's not that Batman is some strange exception to this rule, that he has to fight anarchism to prove that he's actually on the side of order. That's in fact what the police and the criminal justice system does as well. As a superhero, Batman is just a strange personification of this fact about modern society. We can put this in terms of the social contract, which supposedly justifies this use of violence by a police force to protect society. In keeping with my Freudian approach to Batman, I want to discuss the social contract not in one of the famous contract theorists like Locke, but in the psychoanalytic terms offered by Freud in Civilization and its Discontents. Here's Freud. The first requisite of civilization, therefore, is that of justice. That is the assurance that a law once made will not be broken in favor of an individual. The further course of cultural development seems to tend towards making the law no longer an expression of the will of a small community, a caste or a stratum of the population, or a racial group, which in its turn behaves like a violent individual towards other and perhaps more numerous collections of people. The final outcome should be a rule of law to which all, except those who are not capable of entering a community, have contributed by a sacrifice of their instincts and which leaves no one, again with the same exception, at the mercy of brute force. So, Freud's description of justice is one which justifies the state's claim of a monopoly on violence. It's a binding agreement to cease all violence done for selfish gain, whether that's selfish individual gain or selfish group gain, but with the promise that violence will still be used, but only against those who are, quote, not capable of entering a community. That is to say, those who still want to do violence for individual or group gain. So each member of civilization gives up their instincts, the brute inside of them, in exchange for the sacrifice of those same instincts from everyone else. And for those incapable of giving up their brutish instincts, the community duly authorizes brute force to be deployed against those people. But even if this obviously fantastical division of people into uncivilized brutes and civilized post-brutes were achievable, Freud has left out a necessary group of people, civilized brutes who do violence against the uncivilized brutes. Call them guardians, call them watchmen, call them the police. Freud's description of civilization requires people who are within civilization 
willing and able to apply brute force. And despite centuries of attempts to watch the watchmen, such as internal affairs divisions, citizen review boards, body cameras, consent degrees, the civilized brutes remain in power. The result is a tragic irony. Civilization designed to exclude brutes ends up run by brutes. These brutish guardians are in fact the only ones who are not at the mercy of brute force. The civilized non-brutes, aka citizens or people, have sacrificed their brutish instincts, but are still at the mercy of their guardians, provided that the guardians duly authorize their force with bureaucratic procedures. To put it more simply, in the name of nonviolence, cops are allowed to use violence. And Freud's description of civilization fails to mention cops because, well, if he mentions them, he's fucked. At this point in the argument, defenders of civilization have a number of ways they can proceed, but I contend that all of them, liberal, Marxist, Leninist, fascist, etc., will ultimately simply absolve themselves of brutishness under the argument that their violence is done only against brutes for good reasons. The anarchist response is to argue that the entire social contract is a mistake, that there should not be any guardians of society authorized to do violence, that civilization actually means mutual aid, not mutually assured destruction, and that violence in the name of nonviolence is as immoral as it is incoherent. This challenge seems to me an unanswerable one. Unless, of course... There exists an individual above all petty moral concerns, a violent individual who is never a brute, a watchman who doesn't need to be watched. Failing such an individual, the anarchists will win the argument. Enter the Batman. What I'm suggesting now is that all of the Batman stories that I want to cover in my book are precisely about this challenge. Although Batman has thoroughly repressed this issue, the problem keeps bubbling up. In order to tell a story about Batman's essence, a Batman story must confront the need for a just individual who works against the justice system in order to preserve the justice system. But in order to be a story about Batman, the work can't resolve that contradiction lest Batman cease to be Batman and become instead a psychopath or a tool of the state. My argument is that each of these great Batman stories has a deeper conflict than Batman versus the Joker, or Batman against crime, or anything that Batman himself faces. The unconscious conflict that provides the emotional energy is the conflict between neutering Batman or unleashing his brute force without restraint. Batman can't go down either of these paths and remain Batman, but Batman can't have a stable moral path between them because he represents the inherent instability of a system which promises violence in the name of nonviolence. So the challenge is to create a story in which, against the odds and against all logic, it makes sense for Batman to exist in his untenable state as an unlawful defender of the law. Or, as I've said, it's to pit Batman against anarchism. My argument is that this problem cannot actually be solved, and thus the winner of each conflict should always be anarchism. But since Batman must always win, each of these stories resolves the situation unfairly, cheating its way out of the Kobayashi Maru. As an anarchist, I take a dim view of this cheating, but I take it also to be a revealing feature of our corrupt society. Every citizen of a liberal democracy knows that the government can't be trusted, that the legal system is unjust, that the whole system is rigged, and that the people need a defender. 
but the culture cannot throw a hero up the pop charts who represents a real challenge to the system. So we get Batman, a hero who is both meant to shore up and undermine the existing order. But the stories can't manage this impossible project, so they use their sleight of hand, hiding the weak point in their self-conception somewhere in their story and hoping the reader doesn't look behind the curtain. Analyses of these Batman stories find the weak points that reveal that anarchism, not Batman, would win in a fair fight. And those weak points tell us exactly what's wrong with the liberal capitalist sense of justice. As I've mentioned, I'm hoping to write a book in which I analyze a number of these stories. But I don't need to do this work on the third Christopher Nolan movie, the one with Bane, The Dark Knight Rises, because David Graeber already has. In his essay on Batman and the problem of constituent power, Graeber lays out a less elaborate version of the argument I've just made. It's the argument that serves as my inspiration. Honestly, you could think of this project, like my entire podcast, as just expanding upon the ideas that Graeber has already put out there. And I want to expand this by saying that Graeber seems to claim that this Batman versus anarchism is a problem in the Christopher Nolan trilogy. As Graeber puts it, Nolan's villains are always anarchists. This is assuredly true. But I think going at least back to 1985, when Frank Miller writes The Dark Knight Returns, Batman's villains have to be anarchists. Because to tell a Batman story, your villain is always anarchism. Batman storytellers exist in what I'm going to call the anxiety of anarchism, meaning that to be a true hero, Batman must be an anarchist, and yet to be a mainstream icon, Batman cannot be an anarchist. So the secret fear in the heart of each Batman storyteller, or their editor, is that they will make Batman an anarchist. In The Dark Knight Returns, Frank Miller actually does this, which is why that story is not canonical. That's not the real Batman, because he's really an anarchist. Nolan goes pretty far the other way. As Graeber points out, even though his primary villain is an anarchist in The Dark Knight Rises, he uh, goes ahead and has a Robespierre-style reign of terror presided over by the Scarecrow, as if there's no difference between anarchism and Jacobinism. I'm not going to walk you through all of Graeber's argument. I highly recommend you just find that essay or get his book on bureaucracy, The Utopia of Rules, which includes the essay. But I want to close with this paragraph by Graeber. He's referring specifically to The Dark Knight Rises, but I take this to apply to all Batman stories. Is there supposed to be a message we can all take home from this? If there was, it would seem to be something along the lines of, true, the system is corrupt, but it's all we have, and anyway, figures of authority can be trusted if they have first been chastened and endured terrible suffering. Normal police let children die on bridges. Police who've been buried alive for a few weeks can employ violence legitimately. True, there is injustice and its victims deserve our sympathy, but keep it within reasonable limits. Charity is much better than addressing structural problems. That way lies madness. Because in Nolan's universe, any attempt to address structural problems, even through non-violent civil disobedience, really is a form of violence because that's all it could possibly be. Imaginative politics are inherently violent, 
and therefore there's nothing inappropriate if police respond by smashing apparently peaceful protesters' heads repeatedly against the concrete. Well, there you have it. That was Batman versus Anarchism from Everyday Anarchism. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, if you want more, please email me at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com or email me anyways. I really appreciate your emails. You can go to everydayanarchism.com to find more episodes or financially support the show. If I do get enough financial support, I should be able to get the podcast coming out more regularly if I can eventually hire an editor. You can also help the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just telling a friend. Thanks so much to everyone who's gotten the show this far. This is the first season two episode I've recorded. I hope it will also be the first one that airs. It feels great to be back. Thank you to everyone. And of course, the man without whom there would be no podcast, or at least it wouldn't sound very good, the music which you're about to hear, is by David Hill.